0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org
1: This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards.
2: Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm your host, Nick Batzig, and we are so thankful that you've taken the time to tune in and listen. And we are uh, sitting down with our regular panelists. We have Dave Filson, who is teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, how are you doing?
1: Doing well. Good to be here.
2: Good to have you back on, and as usual, we have Jeff Waddington with us. Jeff is the Stated Supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. Jeff, great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's good to be regular at my age, you know? Yeah, yeah, nice. Okay. (laughs) Not going to touch that one. Um, So we are... um, We are looking today at uh, one of Edward's sermons, one that I read as a very young Christian and that over the years has really resurfaced in my thinking and um, has had a pretty big impact on me. And so I I pitched this to the guys that we would cover this. And so we are looking at um, Edward's sermon on Genesis 39.12 which is based on uh, the narrative of of Joseph and his um, fleeing from Potiphar's wife. And the verse that Edwards preached this sermon um, off of was, And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got himself out, Genesis 39.12. It was preached in 1738. And um, as we wade into this sermon, I thought, Jeff, maybe you could talk a little bit about what we may or may not know about its
0: historical setting. Uh, very good. We we actually know very little other than the fact that it was preached at some point in 1738. But remember that you've had, uh, the, uh, think of the several writings that we do are familiar with that come from around this time. You have the justification treaties, uh, that was uh, given in at least two segments uh, in 1734. You've you've got uh, you're coming into uh, another awakening very soon uh, around this time. Edwards would have preached uh, the series that was became known as Charity and Its Fruits, which wasn't published until the 18. 18- uh, mid-1800s uh, long after it had been preached and of course uh, the year after this you have the history of the work of redemption uh, but this is this is a sermon and we want to say this up front uh, because it'll be obvious as we go through it um, that this is a sermon that is heavy on command, exhortation imperative and it lacks an explicit reference to the indicative that is you find Edwards uh, dealing with the issue of avoiding uh, sin and the mere appearance of sin uh, again basing this off, off of Joseph's fleeing from the invitation of Potiphar's wife uh, and but you don't have any reference to the basis or the ability to do this uh Based in the work of the Holy Spirit in our our lives and and you don't have any discussion even where it would be appropriate at one point when he references uh, Peter um, he doesn't he doesn't make reference to explicitly to the to the restoration of Peter in John 21 uh, so you're going to find and, and be for, feel free to give pushback here but it, it doesn't seem as though there's a lot of gospel centric emphasis at this point it is we would argue assumed ra- rather than articulated uh, any thoughts on that guys
1: yeah, I think that's uh, that's an accurate description of this sermon as we have it. Um, you know obviously, we would wish that there was more gospel centric emphasis in this sermon now keep in mind in the context of his regular uh, preaching and teaching ministry there in Northampton, there was plenty of that of that gospel focus for this sermon to be wedged into but but as it stands as a single sermon, yeah we would we would want more. I think
2: yeah, I think those are good observations and Jeff, as you noted when we were talking before the show too, I mean we don't know how much of Edward's sermons were um, were edited. That this sermon in particular because we don't know anything about it and and so I would just reiterate what you've said about that being um, a good test for people too when they read historical sermons and we don't know um, much about um, its preservation or publication or any of those things that you don't know whether you're getting a complete you know you're not whether you're getting what was actually preached. Um, or, how it might have been edited by someone who took liberties, um, or as you 've said, Dave, that you know the time period really affects, and I think that 's a very important point that we can 't emphasize enough um, with Edwards is that you know he is a man of his times, he 's a man of his circumstances, as we all are, and that affects our preaching. I would also say, I appreciate this sermon because it is exemplaristic. And we, we tend not to talk as much about the exemplaristic as maybe we ought to. Um, we all, um, speaking for all of us, I think fairly would value um, exemplaristic preaching, provided it's wed to... You know, gospel centric mm-hmm. or Christ centered mm-hmm. or redemptive historical, because that's what we see in the the especially the epistles and in the scriptures. Um, but I appreciate this because you know Edwards is master of typology, and if you read his you know volume on typology, you are going to find him drawing out these uh, unbelievably beautiful um, uh, types from the life of Joseph. Joseph is this magnificent type, and Edwards is going to just uh, draw out some magnificent um, parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ, the humiliation, the exaltation, but he doesn't do it here. And so I think that's a valuable point for us too, even as we recognize maybe a a perceived deficiency, which I would not be comfortable with just preaching a, a... a warning sermon without the gospel. Nevertheless, there is this strong exemplaristic element that we ought not shy away from, that, that Joseph fled temptation and were called to flee temptation. And, and you know, it's not wrong to see um, Old Testament saints as exemplaristic heroes, provided we see that they are first and foremost looking to the same Savior we're looking to. So that would be my two cents.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would add to that as well. I think this is the first time that we have felt the need to, in any of the sermons we've looked at, in all of our podcasts here, um, sort of begin with this with this kind of caveat. There have been sermons we've looked at that have just been dripping with, you know, grace centered, Christ centered, gospel centric material. I um, we, we're we're overwhelmed at times at Edward's ability uh, to do that. But I think, keep it in mind again. Uh, he he is preaching the gospel so regularly, so that's in the air. In fact, that has led up to, historically here, the the dawn of the awakening, right? As Jeff has mentioned, 34, the justification. Um, he, even in 37, has to begin thinking about, okay, what, what's going on here with the revival, with the faithful narrative, charity and its fruits, not long after that, sinners um, in the hands of an angry God, which we looked at last week, but then, 41, uh, distinguishing marks of the work of the spirit of God. So he's having to think in terms of what, what means this revival. And it shouldn't surprise us that uh an exemplaristic sermon like this should come from the Quill of Edwards when there is such a heightened uh spiritual fervor and ardor among the people. Um and, and on top of that, it's right. just five years later after this or see if we gonna do the math on it, um it's just uh you know a few years later, let's see, seventeen forty four when the bad bookcase happens. And um, so...
2: That's great. Dave, would you want to walk our listeners into uh, a brief overview of the flow of the sermon, the, the outline and whatnot?
1: Sure. And uh, this may be part of what's causing us to wonder, could this sermon have been edited? We just have such little background material on this sermon, but you don't see the clearly delineated tripartite Puritan plain style um, outline of exposition, doctrine, and application. We have sort of extrapolated from from the text as we have it. Uh, a section one, a two, a three, and put the two sections one and two in doctrinal considerations, and section three in application. And I think it it fits well enough. Section one um, under doctrinal, what we would normally see as doctrinal consideration, is that a man should not put himself in the place of temptation. For any reason whatsoever, Um, he should cultivate a due sense of the evil of sin and a hatred for it, and this will assist him in avoided temptation. Um, He should avoid it for his friend's sake. He should avoid temptation for God's sake. Uh, He just emphasizes that we need to know our own weaknesses in order to better avoid sin. Then in section two, uh, he says we need to not only avoid sin, we need to avoid those things that border on sin itself. In other words, those things which aren't necessarily sin, but those things which can feed the lusts of the imagination. And he mentions tavern haunting and, and gaming, uh, et, et cetera. Um, it's interesting. He, he uses the illustration from, um, from the Old Testament of how the people of God would have their houses built with flat roofs so you could walk around on the roof but that God gave a law that battlements would be placed around or guardrails or guard walls so that no one would fall off. And he, he says we need to have battlements placed around uh, our lives so that we don't fall off and slip into, um, into sin. Um, you know, and, he, and it's an interesting, interesting thing he says. You, know, you, can, you can see what leads to sin by looking at the opposite effect that an outpouring of the Holy Spirit has upon that thing. Really, really interesting, which we'll get into. And finally, the application, or Section 3, as we have it in the Hickman edition. He focuses here on the need for young people to be especially on guard against lust. Um, Other things we'll talk about here, uh, bundling or frolicking or whatever, but he's really honing in on young people, being mindful of how, how susceptible they are to temptation and the need for heads of families to govern this, et cetera. So there's kind of an overview.
2: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I would just point out just very briefly that there is, in this sermon, because it is so exemplaristic... There's um, a very interesting element of crossover with Edwards resolutions. Jeff, we were talking about your blog post that you wrote over at Place for Truth, and encourage our listeners to go to Place for Truth and and find Jeff's post that he wrote um, beginning of January on the resolutions of Edwards. But he uses the word resolve or resolution five times in the sermon. And and really, that's what he's doing. He is he is taking his theology of his resolutions, and he's reaching back to the Old Testament, and he's finding one who overcame temptation, and certainly, you know, he overcame it by faith. um, But he was he he had a resolution about him, and um, and that's really the overarching call is to resolve not to enter into temptation. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, it's almost going back to Edward's early years and what he's doing there with resolutions. Any thoughts on that, Jeff?
0: Oh well, in the article you'll see that I I I basically qualify the value of of, of resolutions in the sense that they are one way that a person can, you know, endeavor after new obedience, but they are not the only way. Uh, they may not even be the best way but they are one way. And that, and so I was trying to, maybe I was trying to relativize their importance. Uh, and there are even discussions within Edwards scholarship as to the, noting the fact that the resolutions, uh, were written when he was a stated supply at a Presbyterian church in New, New York city around the wall street area. Uh, and so he was young, <clears throat> young in age and young in the, in terms of uh, ministerial experience and Christian experience. Uh, but at the at the same time, we are called as Christians to uh, endeavor after new obedience. And again, you know, as I do in my own preaching, I remind people these calls are are made to the to those of us who have have been the recipients of grace. In other words, the Holy Spirit has led us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Spirit of He. Of of the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, to use Romans 6 language, uh, and to touch upon, by the way, a, a fine article in the Christ Word Collective on definitive sanctification. Uh mm-hmm. And those, would that, those kinds of things would be the indicative that we would want to point to. Sure. If, we were pre, if we were preaching this sermon, we would add those uh, to, the, to the exhortations. But at the same time, we need to grant that exhortations are, are legitimate. Right. Ex- exhortations right. are not out of place. We just want to make sure that the people who hear us realize that if they have not trusted in Christ, if they're not united to Christ by faith, their attempt to obey these exhortations are going to fail or they're going to be piecemeal they're right. going to be frustrating. Sure.
2: Yeah. And here, again, I would I would kind of defend the exemplaristic element in preaching. Maybe we wouldn't want to call it exemplaristic preaching, but what Edwards has done is he has taken his theology of temptation, he has taken the call to overcome temptation, um, and, and he has reached back and he has found this beautiful example in the life of Joseph. And And I think also there's a mastery um, there's this theological genius here, even, even though it manifests itself in a different way than maybe we see it in, in Edwards and other places, in the way that he assesses the situation. I love how he says at the beginning of the sermon, we may observe how great the temptation was. So he starts with the greatness of the temptation. He says it is to be considered that Joseph was now in his youth. So he's thinking raging hormones— I mean, that's why he's highlighting that. Right. A season of life when persons are most liable to be overcome by temptations of this nature, even though they don't seem to slow down when you're in your late 30s either. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I, I'll just say this as a as an aside. This is, sermon is helpful to me as a man, obviously. Um, yeah. I, I had a professor who was in his 80s, and my buddy and I were praying in seminary once, and and we were praying that God would give us a greater victory over, you know, lust and and just how prevalent lust is in in the hearts of men. And um and this professor walked by and and I said Dr. so and so I said um you know, does it ever get easier? We kind of told him what we were praying about. And he said, "Well, I'm 83 years old, and I still struggle with it. So I guess when we're in heaven,
1: <laughs> and I thought, okay, that, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, doesn't absolutely. give me a lot of hope. But there yeah. is a, there's a reality. <laughs>
2: Nevertheless, Edwards is brilliant when he sets out the greatness of this. He says, Joseph was now, now in his youth, a season of life when persons are most liable to be overcome by temptations of this nature. He was in a state of unexpected prosperity in Potiphar's house, which has a tendency to lift persons up especially young ones, whereby commonly they more easily fall before temptations. What genius in that sentence that Edwards is kind of doing a biblical sociology. You know, Mm -hmm. he's looking into the experience of a young man who's now been exalted to the state of power and basically saying, humanly speaking, he should have fallen into sin, that the temptation was that great.
0: Right.
1: right, because was, part of what he's wanting part of what he's dealing with is not only the raging hormones, as you say, but he has reached this place of prosperity and power, and to right. flee Potiphar's wife could it, it would involve not only denying his lust but it could threaten his his status, right, so he's having to deal with that as well
0: right, and actually i mean it, it he goes into that in the next paragraph, he says, and then consider the superiority of the person that laid the temptation before him. And that itself rendered it a much greater temptation. She was his mistress, and he a servant under her. And and his use of the word mistress there, we need to remember, is the feminine form of master. Uh, I was thinking as I was reading this sermon that our, we tend to use the word mistress in a different sense today. Right. Uh, actually, it would fit in with the temptation that was at work here. But in this case, the use of the word mistress means the, the wife of the master,
2: yeah, she was his um, boss. She, I mean she owned him
0: pretty much. Right. And then he goes on and he says, in the manner of, the te- of her tempting him, she did not only carry herself so towards Joseph as to give him cause to suspect that he might be admitted to such criminal converse with her, but she directly proposed it to him, right. plainly manifesting it manifesting her disposition to it. In other words, it wasn't like he was weighing his options. Is it wise for me to pursue this with her? She might turn me down, and in turning me down, she may tell her husband, and therefore I would be in trouble. And in this instance, he knew that she was all for it.
2: Yeah, right? That's, that's right. I mean, very interesting how Edwards looks at all these uh, dynamics in order to show the greatness, really to show the greatness of this this temptation, um, and you know, make that last part about the manner of it—that she's throwing herself at him, she's not hinting, he's not weighing. Uh, maybe something could happen. There's not that sort of subtlety to it. Um, made me think about uh, Owen, and I think it's in mortification of sin where Owen says, "Don't think you're so holy." You may just not have been um, presented with the right opportunity to fall yet. Exactly. And really, uh-huh. you know, if, if, and you think about distrusting yourself that just because you haven't committed adultery doesn't mean right. you wouldn't if the right, if the right, um, the right situation presented itself if you could get away with it, if nobody else would know, if it was the woman was attractive enough, if, you know, all those ifs of the right. And here is, and I'm sure that she was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, this is one of the most powerful men in Egypt. It's likely that his wife was, you know, gorgeous. Sure, and sure. so, um, I mean, they took beautiful women to be their wives. And so, you know, that that makes it all the more remarkable that he resisted.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a method to what Edwards is doing here, as there always is. He's showing how overwhelming this tem- this temptation is. I mean, it's just paragraph after paragraph, everything that we've sort of unpacked here of how overwhelming and virtually inescapable this temptation must have felt. And then what he's going to do in the body of the sermon is say, don't even get near. Don't e- Don't even get to a place where you can even smell temptation, much less... Get into a place where, in this case, day by day he was being tempted with this. Um, you know, Edwards is is taking us deep into this temptation, uh, almost you know, pain, painting a picture where his listener had to have thought, well, how how could anyone have avoided such an overwhelming temptation? Then to say later, don't even don't even sniff temptation. Build build embankments around you against uh, not not just sin itself. But even the very things that would lead to temptation.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a very actually the introduction of this sermon is a very powerful um introduction so really encourage our listeners to take time to read it. Also, one final thought from my part on the introduction is I like the way that he juxtaposes the resolution of Joseph with the resolution of Potiphar's wife. He says um as he he kind of walks out of the introduction that he persisted resolute and unshaken under her continual Solicitations mm-hmm. and and there and it came to pass he quotes verse ten, it came to pass as she spoke to Joseph day by day, yeah, it wasn't just one time that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her to be with her, and then on this he ends that section on this account, he persisted in his his resolution to the last, and then he says, she laid hold on him as though she were resolute to attain her purpose on him. So I like that kind of the two resolutions pulling against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting observation on his part.
1: Yeah. Yes. Ju- ju- juxtaposes that kind of like he juxtaposes. He had rather lose his garment than lose his chastity.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's really good. Uh- it's an it's a it actually is a, a longer introduction than than we sometimes see in an Edward sermon because he wants to go into the psychological dynamics of what's going on here uh showing that that uh, Joseph's behavior was what he described as very remarkable under these uh temptations and uh it's interesting we don't have a a doctrine actually labeled as such but I think we find it at the very at the very end of the introduction or the exposition section where it's where Edward says this behavior of Joseph is doubtless recorded for the instruction of all and he could have made reference to Paul's comments in, into the church at Corinth that these things that is the Old Testament were written for our uh, benefit mm-hmm. uh, he does not but he he alludes to it basically and then he goes on therefore from the The words I shall observe, that it is our duty not only to avoid those things that are themselves sinful, but also, as far as may be, those things that lead and expose to sin. And that really is basically the gist of the whole sermon. Avoid sin and avoid those things that lead to and uh, encourage sin.
2: This sermon is divided into... um Two sections under the doctrinal, and then one section on the applicatory, which, as Dave pointed out, is not as clear. Um, it's not in its normal um, division in printed form, and yet the two sections under the doctrinal could really be um, could really be. Uh, broken down and and defined as being section one, a man should not put himself in the place of temptation. Section two, the things that lead to sin are those that border on sin itself, those things which feed the lust of the imagination. And as we kind of open up the doctrinal section, um, it's interesting that what Edwards is really trying to press home in his own words is why we should avoid what tends to sin. And so really being cautious, being careful. Um, At one point he says, um, that we're to use the utmost possible diligence and caution to avoid sin. You know, I think that's something that we need to hear a lot more of in our day. Um, I don't know about you guys, but even when we we preach against sin, I'm not sure that that element is is very prevalent at all in, in our pulpits today. Thoughts on that? that? That the utmost care needs to be given to avoid sin?
0: Well, if we understand, and Edwards actually says this in the very first paragraph under section one, Joseph was sensible that he had a naturally corrupt heart that tended to betray him to sin. And that's why he was very resolute to not even allow the camel's nose under the tent flap, if we will, to use that analogy. Uh, He understood his own heart. Uh, that he wasn't strong you see that's maybe that's one of the things we need to be careful of uh Joseph was strong but he didn't but that was because it was the work of God the grace of God at work in him he wasn't inherently strong Right, And Ed, Edwards will actually touch upon this later, that it's when we think, and he actually touched upon it earlier when he said, when we are going, when we are at high points, right? Especially if we're young, if we're at high points, that's when we're most susceptible to fall. Uh, and that's probably something to keep in mind at all times. When we think we're strongest, we're actually at our most weak. Uh, and Joseph was able to stand resolute, or actually I should say run resolutely because he knew that his own heart was corrupt. Uh, and we often don't think of Joseph as being corrupt, because the, the the main thrust of the narrative of Joseph's story is that he's a godly man enduring terrible circumstances. Uh, and of course, this, this account will lead to him being thrown in jail and being forgotten about. Uh, but but it's very important to remember that he understood the na- the actual nature of his heart. Jeff,
2: I think that's a great point. And it's interesting that Edwards actually ends section one of the doctrinal section by saying, "...the wisest and strongest and some of the most holy men in the world have been overthrown by such means by women." So was David, so was Solomon, his wives turned away his heart. If such persons so eminent for holiness were this way led into sin, surely it should be a warning to us, like, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so you're right, Jeff, it's, it's not just saying, you're strong enough, go do it, but distrust yourself, better men have fallen because of this, take heed. Right. So, and, th-
0: and that's the thing we maybe that, that, that's missing in our preaching is we need to remind ourselves and our people that we're not strong. And if we think we're strong, that's probably when we're at our weakest. Is it? And so we need to be careful. Uh, because we're weak, because our hearts are corrupt, because our hearts are desperately wicked, who could know them? To, to, you We're know, called Jeremiah 17. Um, mm-hmm. We need to be very careful because – the. Uh, it doesn't take much to to trip us up. Now, what what I find interesting, moving on to another point, is that very early in under the the first point, he he makes uh, this observation. He said, "I said that persons should avoid things that are spo- exposed to sin as far as may be, because it is possible that persons may be called to expose themselves to temptation, and when it is so." they may hope for divine strength and protection under temptation so there that's interesting that w- people might think that Edwards would not have an exception clause but he has an exception clause right here at the beginning that some men that some people may their 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 lives or their calling may expose them to to temptations uh, that that uh, would require that they draw upon the grace and strength that god provides uh, because of that any thoughts
1: joseph's life was an example of that right exactly god's providence following god's calling joseph himself um was of necessity in a more temptable environment as we see
2: yeah that's helpful let me let me read for our um listeners sake the nine just basic statements that he makes in this first section of the doctrine and then you guys give me some thoughts on those um as we will we, we'll back up and go back over those. First, he says it is very evident that we ought to use our utmost endeavors to avoid sin. It's pretty straightforward. Secondly, he says it is evident that we ought to avoid those things that expose and lead to sin, because a due sense of the evil of sin and a just hatred of it will necessarily have this effect upon us. Third, it is evident that we ought not only to avoid sin— but things that expose and lead to sin because this is the way we act in things that pertain to our temporal interest. Fourth, we are wont to do thus by our dear earthly friends. He elaborates on that and says, we not only are careful of those things wherein the destruction of their lives or their hurt and calamity in any respect directly consist, but are careful to avoid those things that but remotely tend to it. Fifth, we would have God in his providence toward us, not to order those things that tend to our hurt or expose our interest. Therefore, certainly we ought to avoid those things that lead to sin against him. Sixth, seeing we are to pray, we may not be led into temptation. Certainly we ought not to run ourselves into it. Seventh, the apostle directs us to avoid those things that are in themselves lawful, but tend to lead others into sin. Eighth, there are many precepts of Scripture which directly and positively imply that we ought to avoid those things that tend to sin. And and he lists a number of biblical references for support. And the ninth, a prudent sense of our own weakness and exposedness to yield to temptation obliges us to avoid that which leads or exposes sin. Any thoughts on any of those from you guys? well i'm i'm am
0: remi- I'm reminded of the, the cute little uh, jo- comment that's made about the lord the uh, lord's prayer lead us not into temptation lord we can find it ourselves uh, <laughs> that really that that kind of sums up what what edwards is preaching about isn't it that that uh, our tendency is to fall into temptation and we are unwise to let's put it this way we're un- you know even if we are uh you know, at a very good point, if I may call it a sweet spot in our spiritual life, that's the point where we should be the least trusting of ourselves and not the most trusting of our. We should be the most trusting of God and the least trusting of ourselves, I think, at all times, but especially where we right. think that we're we're strong.
1: Yeah, and I think he's doing what he's doing here is he's taking a simple truth of love the Lord and hate sin, and he's holding that concept up and looking at it from every angle he possibly can to sort of restate and just sort of state that truth and just screw it in, you know, turn by turn by turn. Um, it's interesting that he draws the analogy of the way that men take care of their temporal or their physical selves. You know, they're they're not going to put themselves in physical danger of rivers or deep waters or what he calls rotten ice, or you might think thin ice. Uh, because of what can happen to him, yet we will put ourselves in dangerous places spiritually, and um, and so he's warning us against that. And then I love what he says here too. He's we, we want to avoid sin because of the impact it has on our on our friends, right? Right on our family, and then and as well, we love the Lord, right? To, to love the Lord, why would we want to do things that would fly in the face of our love?
0: This is a common occurrence, I think, in the writings and preaching of Edwards, is that idea that you take all sorts of care to look out for your temporal interests. Why are you not doing the same thing for your spiritual interests? And so that I'm not surprised to find it is one of the points in in this sermon, right, that that we care about our temporal interests. Why are we not showing the same kind of effort or energy with regard to our eternal interests.
2: Yeah, you know, this sermon is just full of motivations when you think about um – The subject of what motivates us, there's a lot of debate right now about is gratitude, the only motivation for holiness, and what role does duty play, and what role does fear of hell play? And we've talked about some of those things on different shows. But, you know, this is an interesting sermon to me because it's really dealing with motivation. And duty is certainly always in view, but love to the Lord, love to neighbor is really as you pointed out Dave is very interesting notice what's never in here is avoiding consequences as the the main motivation because oftentimes you know i think a lot of us, and this kind of moves into the realm of worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow, right? Paul says, worldly right. sorrow leads, it leads to death, and godly sorrow leads to repentance to life, and that there is a sorrow that is worldly. I'm sorry I contracted this disease because of my sexual sin. I'm sorry that you know, I got someone pregnant because of this sexual sin. I'm sorry that I've hurt my wife and children. Now, there's a rightness— to want not wanting those consequences. It's not a wrongness, but if that that's the motivation, and I think for a lot of us if we're honest, the reason we do avoid sin is because we're merely trying to avoid consequences. I don't want to do this sin because it's going to be detrimental to my body. That's legitimate, but that's not that's not, a in and of itself, a godly motivation. So I really like how Edwards kind of hits all these different dimensions, but what really at the heart of this is, you know, Joseph said, how can I sin against the Lord? He loved the Lord. The Lord had redeemed him. He was trusting the Lord. How can I do this thing and sin against the Lord? And then, as you point out, Dave, secondarily, how can I do these things that are going to hurt those that I love, that God has put in my life to be a blessing
0: to uh, you now no, inter- you know what's interesting. There is that we've just discovered a gospel element.
1: Sure. Sure. In,
0: in other words, the indicative. In other words, if you if, if you do love the Lord, and you love your neighbor, and those are descriptions that only apply to the Christian, to the true believer. Sure. Then you're you're not going to want to do the things that 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 hurt the Lord, that that displeased the Lord, or that that do damage to our neighbors. It's interesting, though, uh, that, that we have unlocked un, uh, something that's in there, not prevalent and maybe not emphasized as we would want it, but it is there. Yeah,
1: it's there because it's in Edwards, and um, so it, it probably shouldn't surprise us that we've unlocked a little tidbit there. And, you know, Nick, what you're saying, uh, it really fits into Edwards' overall ethical and even aesthetic program in, in one sense because – He's saying, look, your your primary – it is it is a proper motivation to avoid sin because you don't want to inflict on yourself or others the consequences of your sin. But that can't be the primary. If, that, right. if that's your only motivation, as you said, Nick, it's not a godly motivation. It can't be your primary motivation. It must be born out of love for him not not because of the consequences that you're going to face or the troubles or or the hardships you're going to face if you get caught similarly on on the positive side of edwards' ethic you know his whole theory of love for god is loving god for who he is in and of himself loving him for who he is simply considered uh as your primary motivation if we can say it that way for loving god as opposed to loving god simply for what you can get out of him or what he's done for you or what you think you can Uh, can get from him, not that we do not love him for his grace toward us and the things that he does and provides for us, but that's not our primary motivation for loving him. Our primary motivation for loving him is that he's altogether lovely and that in and of himself, he's worthy of our love and he's worthy of our desire. He's the cream of all our pleasures. And so when it comes to avoiding temptation, the primary motivation is uh, not so that we can avoid hardships or consequences but our primary motivation is born out of the fact that, indeed, he is the cream of all our pleasures. We love him.
0: And and, and conversely, we might say, in addition to understanding the infinite holiness and loveliness of God, uh, under the second point, Edwards will point out that, that, that sin in itself is horrific and, and infinitely hateful. Uh, and uh, its natural tendency is infinitely dreadful. In fact, he goes on to say, every sin naturally carries hell in it. Uh, Therefore, all sin ought to be treated by us as we would treat a thing that is infinitely terrible. Now, he goes on and he points out that not every sin uh, brings about the worst consequences. He says, if any sin, yea, the least sin, does not necessarily bring eternal ruin with it, this is owing to nothing but the free grace and mercy of god to us and not to the nature and tendency of sin itself so sin itself is is hell inducing or hell bound if we we can put it that way and if it and if any given sin is not hell bound it's because god has extended grace and mercy to us
2: yeah you know one one of the marked features of this sermon and and maybe one of the reasons that you know, I've liked it so much over the years and and have not consciously thought this is, it's really a masterful um, exhibition of how Edwards is always checking what he's saying theologically. He's always, he's sort of, he's qualifying at every point, isn't he, through here, even when he's dealing with um, the nature of sin and and, uh, the warnings that he's giving and the motivations, he's always kind of countering, going back and forth and hitting the different angles. So I think just for our listeners to kind of take time and read through, I think that's a marked feature of yep. Edwards everywhere. But I think that's a very strong feature of this sermon. Mm-hmm. Agreed.
1: And it's interesting, Jeff, you talked about sin being hell-inducing, that, that in every sin there is a containment of hell, so to speak. Does that not ring a bell with our last sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he said our hearts – Right. right. Our hearts are, in effect, they, they, they contain the, the flames of hell uh, in them. So there, there's a pretty uh, all-encompassing theology of sin that Edwards uh, displays here and in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which came uh, a few years later in 41.
2: Yeah, so... Um uh, we want to encourage you to read through section one. There's so much more that we don't have time to go through each of those nine points, but um, I think maybe that'll just help whet your appetite a little bit for getting in there and, and reading those things. And, guys, as we move into section two of the doctrinal section, um, I'm just going to go ahead and read a summary of the six or the seven points that Edward sets out here. First, he says, as he talks about how do we know what exposes to sin and leads to sin, he says, First, that which borders on those sins to which the lust of men's hearts strongly incline them is of this sort. Second, those things that tend to feed lust in the imagination— are of this kind. Third, those things that the experience and observation of mankind show to be ordinarily attended or followed with sin are of this sort. Fourth, another way by which persons may determine of some things that they lead and expose to sin is by their own experience, or what they have found in themselves. Fifth, we may determine whether a thing be of an evil tendency or not by the effect that an outpouring of the Spirit of God and a general flourishing of religion has with respect to it which is an interesting one we could touch on. Sixth, we may determine by the effect that a general decay of religion has with respect to them, whether they be things of a sinful tendency or not. And seventh, we may in good things determine whether any custom be of a good tendency by considering what the effect would be if it was openly and universally owned and practiced. That's that's a very substantive section. Thoughts on that?
1: Right. He's, he's asking us to do a couple of things. Um, well, one, one main thing, and that is to know yourself. And uh, know what in the inclination and imagination of your heart uh, leads towards sin. And then look at your own experience and the experience of others, both negatively, what have you experienced that has led you into sin? What have you seen in the experience of others uh, when they have fallen into sin? And then, uh, interestingly, as you said, Nick, what in your experience have you seen the Spirit of God be approving of? And when the Spirit of God is outpoured, what things are approved of, and what things, what sinful things, uh, are proven sinful by their diminishing under an outpouring of the Spirit of God? So, really, he's asking us to, you know, to to be uh, introspective and observant.
2: Yeah, it's it's right. very, very interesting. And um, Sinclair Ferguson, in Discovering God's Will, and, and I was helped by this greatly as a young Christian, um, has a short section where he sets out six questions to ask. So do you want to know what God's will is? And I, you know, on one hand, if we said, what tends to sin, um, we may be able to say, well— anything that goes against God's law. But but it's more complex than that, isn't it? I mean, Edwards is really saying it's more complex than just saying God says, don't commit adultery. Okay, we've got that, you know, but Edwards is going to go in and say, so how do I stay away from entering into that temptation? How do I keep myself? And, and, you know, the fundamentalists would say, well, don't ever put yourself anywhere where you could, you know, anything could happen. And that's kind of a, a cheap black and white, you know, Um, unhelpful. I mean, that's the error of fundamentalism. And Edwards is trying to navigate with thoughtful questions here in the section, like you said, Dave, both um, introspectively and by observation. But, you know, it's interesting. Ferguson, in Discovering God's Will, has, has these six questions he sets out. How do I know that I'm in God's will? He says, ask yourself, is what I'm about to do, is it lawful? Number two, is it beneficial to me? Number three, is it enslaving? Number four, is it consistent with Christ's lordship? Number five, is it helpful to others? And number six, is it consistent with biblical example? In a sense, Edwards, and I'm sure Ferguson got a lot of his thoughts from Edwards and others, uh, other Puritans, but that's really what he's doing, isn't he? That we we have to actively ask these questions as, as we're faced with situations, that the Christian life is really one of thoughtfulness and examination and, um, and questions. So Yeah,
0: to putting on the brakes, if you will, uh, in whatever we think and do, right? Is uh, to slow down and give thought to these. It's, it's a call, uh, both the Ferguson and Edwards are, are issuing a call to be thoughtful, and not in an academic sense, but to be thoughtful in terms of how we live our Christian life that we yeah. don't just we don't just go with the flow right, uh, right. of cul- of culture or of those around us but we actually give thought to what we think say and do now i, I find uh, uh sections the 5th and 6th uh, uh matters quite interesting he's basically saying uh, pay attention to what happens when the spirit of god is outpoured and there's a general flourishing of religion what tendencies and activities diminish and then conversely, when there is a general decay of religion, what inclinations and acts uh increase in increase Isn't that you know, interesting. It's, the, it's the other side and and so then from that, you can draw some conclusions as well shows the spiritual sensitivity of Edwards doesn't oh, it of his heart, right.
2: his knowledge, his awareness of how God works, his awareness of how um when when God's spirit is at work what what that accomplishes, what that does. I mean it's very interesting, isn't it?
1: It just touches on that thoughtfulness that we were talking about here a second ago. He actually slowed down in in a way that we don't this is this is true of, of Puritans as a whole. You read Puritan literature, Puritan sermons, but Edwards was was one who was extremely thoughtful and I wonder what time he must have put into a sermon that Say in the the Hickman edition here takes up you know five or so pages, uh, double you know column small print. Now that I think about it, it's you know longer than what we typically will tolerate today in terms of uh, sermon uh, length and so forth. But what time he must have set back and and had to think about things negative things positive inducements introspection uh, observation all of those kind of things and yet to come up with this right to come up with this. Um, Again, contextually, he's in the time, the dawn of the awakening. He's trying to think in terms of what's happening now with the Spirit being poured out. He doesn't want to take things for granted that just because the Spirit's being poured out, we can just live how we want. He's saying, look, the Spirit's being poured out. Look at the things the Spirit is approving, and look at the things that he's convicting.
2: Yeah, and I, I wanted to highlight, I think, what is most impacting to me in this whole sermon and what has been impacting to me in the past, thinking back on it, and what I really need today, and what I would say all men in the church need today, is what he says under his second point, uh, under the second section, when he says, you know, you'll know that that to avoid um, certain things, anything that tends to feed lust in the imagination. And this is what Edward says. He says, Those things that have a natural tendency to excite in the mind the imagination of that which is the object of the lust certainly tend to feed and promote that lust. What can be more evident than that a presenting of the object tends to stir up the appetite? Reason and experience teach this. Therefore, all things, whether words or actions, which have a tendency and exposed to sin— Tend also to raise in the mind imaginations of what the lust tends to do. It is certainly wrong to feed a lust even in the imagination. Man, we need to hear that so. So much, it is certainly wrong to feed a lust, even in the imagination, is quite contrary to the holy <laughs> rules of God's word. Proverbs 24, 9, the thought of the foolishness is sin. Matthew five twenty eight: whoever looks on a woman to lust has committed adultery. A man, by gratifying his lust in the imagination and thoughts, may make his soul in the sight of God to be a hold of foul spirits, and like a cage of every unclean and hateful bird, and sinful imaginations tend to sinful actions and outward behavior in the end. Lust is always first conceived in the imagination imagination, and then brought forth in the outward practice. You may see the progress of it in James one fifteen. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. Such things are abominable in the sight of a pure and holy God. We are commanded to keep at a great distance from spiritual pollution and to hate even the very, quote, garment spotted with the flesh, Jude 23. That is so important. Um, you know, I know we all say we believe that, but how much we need to hear that, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Be reminded of it, right? Yeah. uh What would Edward say in the day when we have, you know, TV, movies, music, and internet? Oh, um, I mean, he would be, he would be stressing that even more so. Yeah. Or we should say that we should take it to heart. Yeah. Uh, that we're surrounded, maybe even more so than Edward's day, and then in Edward's day, we're, we are bombarded. Sure. Oh, let's let's also add billboards, and now that the billboards are electronic and not just. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah pornography, you know, strip it.
2: clubs, prostitution, oh. everything else that America's embraced. Uh, sure, yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and it'll probably, it will get worse, uh, I think, in the days ahead. Uh, now that we come now, I think, to the third section, which we've classified as application, because what happens is uh, Edwards will take the principles that he's laid out for us in the first two sections of the sermon, and he will specifically apply them to young people. Uh, He says, Thus I have mentioned some general rules by which to determine and judge what things are of a bad and sinful tendency. And these things are so plain that for a person to deny them would be absurd and ridiculous. I would now, in the name of God, warn all persons to avoid such things as appear by these rules to lead and expose to sin. That custom in particular of young people of different sexes reclining together, however little is made of it and however ready people may be to laugh at its being condemned, if it be examined by the rules that have been mentioned, it will appear past all contradiction to be one of those that lead and expose to sin. In particular, uh, it was what the practice of uh, what... uh, David is called frolicking, but what, what some will refer to as bundling, uh, this was the practice of, of, uh, of a young man and a young woman who, who may be engaged, who are put into sacks and they are sewn up in an individual sacks, but they lie together in bed and sleep. Uh, this was a practice that Edwards uh, condemned, and rightly so. And In fact, we see this in, I don't know, if you've seen the movie The Patriot by Mel Gibson, there's a scene where Heath Ledger and his uh, fiance this is what happens, they are each tied into sacks, but they're allowed to lie together in bed overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's treated as a comical or a semi-comical incident, and Edwards, of course, is clearly opposed to such a practice that's one example of of a youthful activity that edwards addresses quite clearly
1: contextually you have the awakening there is spiritual fervor and ardor in the air there is revival and awakening he does not want people to take things for granted take you know morality and biblical morality for granted and in some ways what he's warning young people here about um temptation and calling them to holiness and so forth, is actually part of what, in the mid-40s, 1744 to be exact, was the beginning of his downfall. Not not the whole, but in part, the beginning of his downfall in Northampton, which right. was um, the bad bookcase wherein uh, some young men had found a book on midwifery, which was illustrated, uh, Ill- illustrations of of women giving birth to children and women's anatomy and that sort of thing, and they were using it um, basically as pornography uh, for for Lack of a better way of describing it, and they were teasing the girls, saying to them, um, "We know more about ye than ye know about ye." in other words, we you know, they, they were they were taunting and, and uh, teasing the girls. Edwards, of course, reacted um, you know, viscerally to this, and I think we might say he probably was imprudent in the, the public way he handled it, but he was uh, given this: he was vitally committed to holiness. Among teenagers,
2: it's interesting that it's what he's dealing with in this sermon in 1738. That in what 1750, pretty much brings his ministry at Northampton to a close. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because of sexual sin in his life, but in the youth in the church who he is addressing in this sermon. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. He
0: was Edwards was very clear in this sermon what what kinds of beha- activities uh, he goes on in this uh, third section to deal with what we would call uh you know carousing in other words young people gathering together at night in taverns and playing games uh, he does mention specifically cards basically it's uh, uh you know this kind of behavior tends toward leading young people into sin uh, and, and it was this concern with young people's behavior that got him into trouble with the bad book controversy. Uh, now, we would say that if you're familiar with that controversy, you'll know that Edwards made the mistake in a public meeting in a worship service of saying, I want to meet with the following people. And he doesn't distinguish between those who are potential culprits and those who are witnesses mm-hmm. to, to the activity. And, and that was his undoing. Uh, and that was a lack of wisdom on his part, uh, perhaps uh, fueled by a legitimate concern. Uh, the these young men were actually committing what we would call uh, sexual harassment. That's right. how it would, that's how it would be understood in our day. And Edwards was rightfully opposed to it, but he 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 slightly he 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 took a misstep in the in the way that he instead of saying uh, he might have said you know. He, he might have asked to, to meet with people privately. Uh, why he did it publicly, I don't know. Uh, or he might have said the the following people, some of whom are, you know, not all of whom are, you know, guilty of the or, or are, you know, believed to be guilty of the crime. Uh, he didn't he didn't make those kind of distinctions. And that what that is what eventually led to his uh, deposition from the pulpit in Northampton.
1: Yeah, I think the the consensus of Edward's scholarship and the testimony of history is that he should have dealt with this privately. He should have he should have addressed this and met with the parties involved, whatever their involvement, off the radar. Well, right,
2: yep. Hindsight, right. Right. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go ahead and just bring this sermon to a close because most of the application here, as Jeff has already noted, is addressed to the children in the church, the the young adults, the teenagers. Edwards is um, really drawing that analogy, isn't he, between Joseph probably being in his late teens, um, maybe early 20s with the young adults and the youth in the church. And um, really what he started with about Joseph being a young man, he is then applying it specifically. Um, it's not so much discriminating preaching to many categories of hearers, but specifically to the youth in the church. And um, we want to encourage you to get a hold of this. You can find this in um, the two-volume uh, edition of Edwards' works that are published both by Banner Truth and Hendrickson. I think that's in volume two. Um, you can also find it online at BibleBB.com. Although Jeff caught an error there, Uh, they actually recapitulate the last two sections of the sermon. So if you read um, sections one, two, and three, you are done. You do not need to read section two and three again unless you want to. Um, (laughs) So that's at BibleBB.com. You can find Dave online. Dave has sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, What is the web address there, Dave?
1: Uh, ChristPres.org
2: christprez.org, so we encourage you to check that out. Uh, Dave also is writing uh, with me and and with Jeff at the Christ Word Collective, that is ChristWordCollective.com. You can also find him on Christ the Center and other podcasts of the Reform Forum at ReformForum.org. Likewise, Jeff is um, involved in lots of different um, ministries there at ReformForum.org. If you want to send people to our church plant, if they move to the Savannah, Georgia area, you can do so by uh, finding us online at NewCovePress.com. Um, and we are so thankful that you have taken time again to listen to another episode of East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards.